RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Well, on Reality Check Radio, we talk quite a bit about health, and fair enough. It's one of the biggest issues in our lives, staying healthy, and how to stay healthy. And I want to welcome to our program, Dr. Sarah Ferrant, DC. She'll explain what that means in just a moment. In early 2000, Dr. Sarah Ferrant coined the term health expression, which is today used around the world by health professionals, health enthusiasts, that's me, individuals and families. In 2010, she organized the world's health information into bite-sized pieces so people could understand it. That's me again, identifying three distinct health approaches. We'll go into that at some point during our chat. I want to welcome Dr. Sarah Ferrant to Reality Check Radio. Sarah, thanks for coming on and making some time for us. Thank you, Paul, for having me. I'm looking forward to sharing. Now you're in the Waiheke Island area, just you know, not getting too close on the location, but that's your part of the country, right? That's the part of the country and the Waikato, so we move between two places. Okay. All right, so... Mia, as I said, we we talk a lot about health uh, on this program. And Mm. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, more and more people who never talked about health are now talking about health again. Would that be right, do you think? Absolutely. And I think one of the, I guess, the the biggest kind of elephants in the room is, well, what is health? You know, where, where does health come from? And I know for me growing up, Paul, and and with a background in physical education and psychology, general science, and uh, DC stands for Doctor of Chiropractic, um, the chiropractic profession. Um, I know when I was doing phys ed, there was was no ability or or no one defined for us what health was. And, And I remember thinking going into or prior to physical education, I thought that health was about if you were you know, taught tight and terrific, then you were healthy. Mm. And then I got into phys ed college and and I, I learned that health was about how you feel and eating good food and being fit. So I didn't it didn't nudge the needle too much in terms of how I was interpreting health. And I and I think that really goes back to how a person was raised in their in their family. So for me I was raised by parents that were very allopathic um, in nature. And my mum, when I was 10, um, I coughed a couple of times in the kitchen and my mum, you know, thought Mount Vesuvius was going off and she turned off the beater and wrapped a a blanket around me and rushed me off to our family um, doctor who was also my uncle because we have a lineage of medical doctors and nurses on my dad's side of the family. And uh, I went in and he asked me a couple of questions, Paul, to which I said uh, or answered uh, yes, no, maybe, sometimes not really. And then he wrote a prescription from that. And then we went down to our other family friends who were uh, the owners of the pharmacy and mum went in and got the prescription fulfilled. And it was interesting, Paul, when she was in there getting the prescription for more amoxicillin, fulfilled I was sitting in the car and I was transported back three years prior to the age of seven where an incident happened and my dad my dad knelt down in front of me and with absolute assurity with absolute confidence and clarity in his voice and his eyes he placed his hand over my heart and he said to me Sarah you have all the answers inside of you wow. all you have to do is ask the question and trust your answer. 
So then I was kind of back in the car again. Mum had jumped back in the driver's seat. We're off home. And we walk back into the kitchen and she pops the pill, gets a glass of water, and then she slides it across the kitchen bench saying the 10 famous words that I'm sure have, have been mouthed in many a household around the world, which is this, here you go, darling, this will make you feel better. Hmm. So my family health recipe, for want of a word, was very much raised that health is about how you feel, not about how you function, but how you feel. And when we look at the word feel, the first three letters actually spell fee. And if you continue to approach your health by how you feel, then there is a fee that you pay for that. And that not only is the plethora of medications that you may end up on, it can indeed be your life with the average person having about 14,000 um, medications in their lifetime. And then if you add over-the-counter drugs to that, you're looking at 44,000. And that's a massive amount of medications that people are taking in one lifetime. And, th you know, mm. that's far too many for me. So yeah, interesting. It's, it's a massive amount. Someone's having my share because I'm not if having you, any. If you put it end on end, it'd go around the block. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so when I... Um, from that day forward at the age of 10, I rarely told my mum and dad about any kind of, you know, sickness, because that was still a word in our household, sickness, that I was having. I just wanted to be on this journey of what my dad had taught me about, you know, trust. You have all the answers inside of you. Just ask that question and trust your answer. Yeah. Um, then, can I, that's really interesting what you say, the experience you had with your father, because that's one thing that I've kind of woken up to just recently through you know, the ordeal we've been through in three years and some medical issues that I need to beat on about those. Mm. When did we lose trust in our own bodies? Because we can trust our own bodies and we can kind of, if with the right mindset, direct them or, or have an expectation of them that can make a difference, whether you call that placebo or whatever, I don't know. But there mm. seems to be a disconnect. And I've been scratching my head on, and it's probably a simple answer, um, you know, technology, industrial revolution, medical progress, all that sort of stuff. But to lose that innate connection with our own body seems, you know, it, it, it has me thinking. It really does. Hmm. And, well, I came, I came across a quote back in about 2000 and maybe it was 2008, could have even been earlier than that. So a number of, you know, decades ago now. And uh, it was a quote by the Buddhist, Paul, and it said this, we will teach them the illusion until they're ready for the truth. And from that quote, I, of course, being a word nerd, went digging and I thought, well, what is an illusion? You know, if I break down that word illusion, I've got Sean at the end of it, condition of, and then if I go backwards, it's got you being ill. Like, that's a condition of you being ill. That's an illusion. So anyway, I went digging in my etymology world as I do, and I, I, I wanted to know what an illusion is. An illusion is a state of being intellectually deceived. And then I thought, well, what is, what is or how are we deceived? And the answer that came back for me was, well, it's about finding the easiest way to see something. Because if you go to an illusion, you know, a, a show or a magic show, you you create the illusion for yourself because you're finding the easiest thing to see. You're not seeing the sleight of hand by yeah, these people. That's right. And so I thought to myself, then, well, what is the easiest way to look at something? 
And the easiest way to look at something is through an indoctrinated system because we're not taught to critically think. We're not taught to be individuals. We're not taught to um, think for ourselves in any way. So and indoctrinated systems are everywhere, aren't they? They're in, they're in finance, they're in health, they're in education, which is a big one. And that's where I think it actually starts in in, in the educational system combined with your family health recipe, like I say, I, was, I grew up in an allopathic world, um, done that way because that's the way it's always been done, without question. So it's like having a, um, a, a great-grandmother who is awesome at making banana bread. And that, that great-grandmother or the great-grandmother shares it with the mother who shares it with the grandchild who shares it with the great-grandchild. Now, there's no, nothing's written down. There's no recipe and ingredients. You just sit on the kitchen bench with your mother or your grandmother, your great-grandmother, making this banana bread that's always been made in your family for generations and it's all done by words and observation. So as children, we're taught at a very young age um, what health is by the sheer actions and observations we make of those actions that our parents did when we created something within our body. So that then becomes, you know, we, we learn health like that in, in the family house and then we go into school and that same indoctrinated allopathic system is, is reinforced through the whole of the health curriculum um, in lots of different ways um, in education. So for us, when when I was uh, pregnant for the very first time, Paul, we were living in the United States studying chiropractic. So I'm going back to the 1990s here, late 1990s. And um, I I believe that when you when you are pregnant or when you are pushed in some way, whether it's a, a bigger health concern that someone may have, you fall back so easily onto that which you were indoctrinated in. So we found some Amish midwives in the US. Uh, cool. And we, uh, yeah, I, I like doing things kind of, you know, finding the underground cover people that will, will be able to assist you. Because I, I've heard that they're some of the healthiest people in the world. I don't know where I heard that. but uh... they, they are. They're incredible. Anyway, we used to go twice a month out to the Amish midwives out at their farm in uh, Illinois. So we drive from Iowa over the Mississippi into Illinois. We go and have um, shared food with a whole lot of other couples from the area that were also using the Amish midwives. And on this particular day, Paul, we sat down and they wanted to ask, the, the question that they asked us was, what's your greatest fear? Well, anyway, we were going around, going around, going, and it came my turn, my turn, and I said, my greatest fear is that I don't trust my body to birth. And that went back, I mean, I, we were studying um, the chiropractic philosophy, so that you are a, a self-healing, self-regulating, self-regenerating, self-maintaining organism that is constantly adapting to your environment. That That's the, and then we have this innate intelligence that, that runs us you know we're not thinking about digesting food or going to the toilet or, or blinking or swallowing it's just our innate intelligence that does that for us and the master communicating master communicating system is the nerve system so if we have any interference to that nerve system then that's when we create miscommunication and that's when things and health challenges can go awry so this master so i was studying all of 
this ingenious part of the body, and yet I didn't trust myself to birth. Anyway, cut to 14 weeks into that pregnancy and I created a miscarriage with twins. And it was one of the most surreal experiences because these two twins gave me the opportunity to experience birth. Right. And I didn't run off and have a DNC and all of that into the allopathic system because I haven't been in it. And um, from that experience alone and the work I did around that afterwards on myself and trusting my body and remembering what my dad had said, I then went on to have three extraordinary home births. Um, the eldest was born in the States with the Amish midwives. Our second boy was born at home just with myself, my husband and a colleague, um, no midwife attached. And our third one was a breech birth at home um, with a midwife attached because of my birthing position. So it was after the birth of our first son that, actually it wasn't after, it was prior to the birth of our first son when I knew that I was pregnant for that second time. And both myself and my husband were like, well, if we are going to raise our children in health, then we need to have congruent language that is going to be appropriate to their experience. So the first word for me to change was sickness. I never, ever wanted our children to grow up thinking that their body got it wrong. And sickness implies that. It implies that that shouldn't be there, therefore your body's got it wrong, and then you have to go to someone to get something to take it away um, as if you're this passive participant playing in this role. And so that's when I coined the term health expression, that really we are expressing health and we are on this, it's not a linear line, it's a continuum. We oscillate from left to right and up to down all the time, every nanosecond of our physical existence. So that's when, when he created something, we just started calling it a health expression. You know, great job, body. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Before we moved from Australia to New Zealand, uh, our, our eldest boy had created a health expression. He was on the bed. I could hear him, and I could hear him just tossing around. And I said to my husband, I'm just going to go and check on him. Anyway, so I went up and checked on him, and I knelt down beside him, much like my dad did at the age of seven, right, with this absolute certainty and knowing. And I placed my hand on his forearm, and I said, and what's going on? He said, I don't know. I don't know. And I said, well, actually, you do. What's going on? And he paused and he said, well, clearly I created a health expression. <laughs> and I'm like, good job, buddy. What's the health expression about? I don't know. I don't know. Yes, you do. Is it physical, chemical or emotional? And he paused and he said, it's physical. And I said, great job, buddy. Health expression, physical body. What's the physical about? And he paused and he, and he said, well, you know how you take me to the skate park because we were home educating at that stage. He was six. Oh, sorry, five and a half, six. And uh, he said, you know the middle ramp? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I haven't been able to get down that ramp. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I think I'm going to grow in my strength and I'm going to be able to get down the ramp. And I just squeezed his forehand, forearm that little bit tighter and I said, do you think? Or do you know? And he went, I know. And I just went, great job, buddy. Health expression, physical body. You're going to grow in your strength and you're going to get down that ramp. And then within two days, Paul, he was down the ramp. So, so, an, so an alternative to that would have been 
you trying to work out if he was sick or not. And then yeah. there would have been a trip to the, possibly to the doctor. And yeah. the doctor will, because they've only got 15 minutes, will say, okay, it's probably this. Here's your piece of paper. Off you go. Next thing you know, taking the medication, there's actually nothing wrong. Nothing wrong yeah. at all is what you're saying. But that's how yeah. it works. Well, yes, and, and in an allopathic world, you know, maybe the mum would have gone and got the thermometer and checked the temperature and, and all of that. But my knowing of trust and the mum, mums know their children better than anyone. You know, they make 98% of the decisions, health decisions in the household. You know, they know their kids. There's that intuitive connection to them. And I knew that whether he created the... the um, you know, a fever or felt hot, I knew that once I adjusted him because for that neurological, you know, uh, connection that that we have, this master communicating system, that if there was the nerve system was clear of that interference, then he would be able to do his job and that is to grow. So for me to go in and want to squash something is kind of like a house burning on fire, Paul, and someone calls the fire brigade and they rock up, jump out of their truck, run over and cut the wires to the alarm, get back in the car and race off and leave the house burning. Yeah. So, so that's not my... Emergency not, over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've been on that journey with our with our kids and and I have hundreds of stories like that with with the kids and creating health expressions and working through them and they have uh we always wanted to my husband and I give them a very comfortable relationship with pain and and pain is your friend pain is not something yeah, we're, that... we're so scared we're so terrified of pain I've been in a lot of pain I know what pain's like hmm. and actually if you experience severe pain, let's say, you kind of, you can get on top of it. I mean, I'm not saying it's pleasant. It's not. And it can give you a bit of clarity of thought as well that you don't have if you never go there. That's what I found anyway. Yeah, and I agree. You know, pain, we've always taught our kids that pain is your friend. You know, your body is doing something. It's in- something to rise above. It's a challenge to rise above, is yeah. But what do I know? That's just just me. No, but no, you're you're exactly right though, Paul. Because one of the things that I teach parents when they when they come to me, you know, in certain situations, is that when a child creates a health expression, because we create it, it's not happening to us. You know, if the germ theory were real, there would be no one alive to debate it. Let's let you know. Let's call it as it is. And so we create these opportunities in our in ourself through our perceptual understanding of our world, how our innate intelligence connects with the universal intelligence. So for the first seven years of life, a child is in their physical body. That's when they do the most growing. Yeah. So they are creating these all the time in order to grow. So if a child creates a fever, let's say, for instance, then I always say to the parents, wait seven to 14 days. And then look and observe and watch your child grow in ways that you have never seen before. Now, they could become more dexterous. You know, um, dexterity can change. A friend group can change. Um, They can grow in height. 
They can choose different vegetables. They're making different choices. They're asking different questions. It, it's all designed that way in order for us to grow. Because as you realise, when you get into your 20s, you're not creating the same health expressions you were when you were in your zero to seven physical body. Because after the first seven years of life is about the seven uh, is about the physical. And then seven to 14, it's about the chemical body. That's when we go through puberty. Our mind and our brain expands. We ask. We ask way bigger questions like where did the first person who ever died get buried, you know, like big questions. And then from 14 to 21 we go into our emotional body and that's where we have that tussle, don't we, with parents. I love you but I hate yeah, you. We I start to identify the hypocrisy coming down yeah. on us and, and asking hard questions. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, and then from 21 through to 28, we go back into our physical body. You know, I want to go to the gym, I've got to catch a mate, I've got to do this, you know, and then we go back to the chemicals. So those three cycles happen throughout the whole of our whole of our um, our life, and I, I think it's a um, uh, it's designed that way in order for us to assist our children with wherever they are. So one right. of the questions I always ask parents is like, how old, you? you know, when they come to it, come to me, I'm like, well, how old is your child? You know, and then that can help me determine whether mm. they're in the chemical, physical, mental body um, and where they may be, you know, journeying. Um, that- it, it seems to me that, um, that y- you know, you kind of have to have things along the way, and I'm putting it in my very basic way because I don't know the terminology. But you've, you've got to train, your system has to train, right? It has to learn about the environment it's in. I suppose there's a certain amount of uh, pre-programming, instinctual knowledge of that you will be delivered into some sort of environment. But once mm. you're in there, it's got to learn. And it has to, you, you've got to take a few hits along the way to train up the system. I know I'm, I'm putting it in a very basic way. It seems to me that... Um, that, that running for medication at every moment could inhibit that. Yeah, it's absolutely. Sort of, it's a misdirection yeah. for the body yeah. in a way. Is, that, yeah. is there anything in that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just like I said before with the, you know, the burning house. We'll just cut their wires to the alarm and run off. And and where does that leave the body? It leaves the body tremendously confused with what are you wanting to do? Because it's designed to do that, surely. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's the same as, um, you know, I think this one kind of gets my goat a bit too <laughs> when, when, you know, kids create injuries and, you know, a sprained ankle and, you know, it's all about rice and arrest ice compression and elevation and we'll put the ice on it. And every time, and our kids are, have done all of that and, and more. And every time that they would put ice on it at a sports thing, I'm like, get the ice off your leg, like take it off. And 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 part of that reason, I, I wrote an article on it of um, oh, I can't remember ice and the nerve system, something I don't know, something about swelling. Anyway, um, uh, it makes no sense that if you sprain your ankle and your body, your your uh, you immediately swell in that area, and the swelling is because the body immediately creates a splint. And we create, oh, it's, creating right. a, it's like creating a moat around something. And then we have all of our marching soldiers. Like So the injury is like the castle. We create the moat with the swelling. And then the marching soldiers, the white blood cells that come in to help mend and repair and, and take care of that. And the splint, the, the swelling of the splint reminds you, don't move it. Right. So we don't want to put ice on something to, to numb our senses, which is what it does, to then continue to move it. That, that, doesn't, make, that doesn't make sense. Is that all about you know, feeling 
not feeling so much. And and like a cosmetic thing, no one likes to look at a swollen ankle, for example. <laughs> yeah, probably more to do with vanity. Uh, yeah, it's it's it is. Well, that it's not normal. Have to make it normal again. Make it normal yeah. at all yeah, costs. Yeah, yeah. And really, possible. that begs the question of well, what is normal? You know, like yeah. that's a whole other conversation, right? Because yeah. what's normal for you is not normal for me. So we can't even create normalities. It's different because life is based on how we perceive and sense our world, and then we create our own internal. Um, uh, uh, health expressions. We create our own signs and symptoms to help us alert us to what's going on. And then as a result of that, and uh, we can then, you know, evolve rather than revolve. You know, I never want to revolve in my life. I want to make sure I'm always evolving Hmm. uh, and going up than round in circles. No, carry on. I was going to say I'll, I'll share an example with you that happened in 2010, and this is how I came to kind of organise the world's health information into these bite-sized pieces So, because I, I think our audience might find this quite interesting. Not the situation, but what, what came out of it, I guess. Um, we had a nanny that was in our employ and she decided to call child services on us because she thought that our children had fevers and I wasn't giving them medication. Oh. So she, yeah, she took it upon herself to to call child services. So, you know, we, then we got this call from child services and um, I wanted to prove that our kids didn't have temperatures and that I actually, uh, as a mother, know more about my children than what someone else might know. And so we booked an appointment, first time they'd ever been to a, a, a medical doctor, and that was to um, get their temperatures taken. It wasn't to walk away with anything. And it was only done to get us off this supposed um, list. Right. And so we uh, we went to the medical doctor, took their temperatures. All the kids' temperatures were in normal range, no high temperatures, nothing. So it took another eight, seven to eight weeks, Paul, to close the case. And you can imagine the stress that we were under. Like I was going, because they put us on a, it was like a child abuser list of denying the right to a child for medical treatment. And even, so the, I, even though nothing was going on, just the, even though the nothing thought was, crime. It's a thought crime is what you'd yeah, say. Yeah, but apparently, you know, our kids were unruly and it banks. You know, like, there's lots of other stuff that she'd had on this list. Yeah. Anyway, is so. Is anyone's um, business? Anyway? No, no, no. And our kids weren't. If you met our kids, they're um, incredible children. But the the... Um, because we were home educating and doing all of that, we're outside the box thinkers. Um, it took eight, eight weeks to close this particular case. So the stress in the house was like pretty high because we didn't know what was happening. No one would return our calls. We'd lost the rights to our children, but they were still able to be with us, but they no one would answer anything. So they wouldn't tell us. It was just, it was a very weird time. However, during that time, I made it my mission to organise the world's health information into bite-sized pieces so people could understand it because I never wanted a parent to go through that again. Yeah. And so I started with what I knew to be true as a young child. If you remember, up to that age of 10, I was in that allopathic system with my parents. And I, I went and I looked at the word allopathic and I wanted to know pathic. What does it mean? So my word nerd came up and, and pathic, Paul, actually means remaining passive. Now, that was a bingo moment for That's me. That's interesting. And I was like, bingo moment, because that's exactly what it does. If you look at the allopathic fix-it medicinal uh, approach to health, you are the passive recipient. You are going to someone to get something, to take something away. You're either lucky or you're unlucky on that particular day. Um, 
and you surrender all sense of responsibility over, like I did in that example when we went to Uncle Richard, I, my mum and I surrendered all responsibility to him. He just wrote the prescription, gave it to us, and we left. And so we left with a treatment. Now, when we break down the word treatment, meant means mind and treat means to deal with. So you are given something to deal with your mind. That's the word treatment. Right, yeah. And that's when we start to create the illusions that something is just not there anymore. So illusion, when we work, look at that word, condition of you being ill. So you just perpetuate by going into this model, sickness after sickness after sickness. So a diagnosis is giving to, given to you, and dire actually, this is interesting, dire in Latin, dire means two, agnosia means don't know, two that don't know. So, uh, you know, I find it fascinating when you start to look at the... It's all the, in the words. The meaning of the words, you know, I'm, that's why I'm such a word nerd. I, I, I was trying to look up as you are talking because I read somewhere recently, but I can't find it. It's, it's always the case. You can never find it immediately <laughs> when you look. But I think even the word patient mm -hmm. is about passive. Very you much know? so. And that is, you know, you sit there, you're at the, the mercy of, and, mm -hmm. and you're really not engaged. That is the origin of the word patient in medicine. Yes, yes, correct. And, and that's why in our practice, Paul, people who come to see us are practice members. They're not wow. patients. Okay. They're, not, they're not waiting for anything um, to be told to them. But in the allopathic model, everything is broken down into blocks, right? It, it's, you know, we're decomposing, we're, we're comparting a, a, a let me think. Boxing, that would be better because I can yeah. say that. Boxing, boxing something. So if you've got a headache, we've got the drug that is going to do just that. Yeah. We know, we'll get you there. And then there's really the, the bottom rung of that is the atom. So if we look at the hierarchy of the body, if we go dive into the body for a minute, we go from systems to organs to tissues to cells to organelles to molecules to atoms, and that's where it stops. That's That's it. And, yeah. and you're just the sum of your parts, really. So it's quite a mechanistic approach to, to health. And then when I came out from the age of 10, there was a new girl that started at school, Paul, and, and her mum was a nurse, but she seemed to be a nurse of a different kind. And she had all these things that would rattle in her fridge. <laughs> and and I would ask, like, you know, what is that? And there were all these vitamins, like vitamin C and B, and whereas we had the drugs in the fridge that were rattling, you know. And I, and I used to go to her place and ask this mum all these questions. And so then I fast realised that there was another level of healthcare called the alternative, and and uh, you know that's where um, you know hundreds of different health um, professions sit. And it's, and, and it's a particular approach to health, which is the alternative approach to health. So there's the allopathic approach with medicine, then there's alternative with all the other bucket, the people that aren't dispensing drugs or surgery um, sit in this kind of bucket. And when I ask people around the world, what does native mean? And most people say, well, it means you know, of the earth or it means organic, or, um, but really what native means is offering a choice. So instead of having aspirin in a, a, an allopathic world, you might get willow bark in an alternative world. Right. So people who move out of the allopathic find the alternative way to look at health 
easy because it's not really threatening. In fact, it's pretty much the same except for three things. One, there, there starts to be an acknowledgement that there's an inner intelligence somewhere in, inside of you and that there is uh, suggestions that are offered to you rather than a diagnosis and maybe you're given a bit more time. Here, go and have a think and have a think about what you'd like to do as opposed to an allopathic where they're onto you straight away. So then when I was looking at all of those pieces put together, there was a whole lot of pieces all that just didn't fit into either of those two health approaches. And so I made up a third one. And I was looking for the name A because I wanted parents to be able to remember, you know, this, you know, way to approach health. And I came up with the word alternate or alternate. And where nate means inborn. So we've got the antithesis of like a, an allopathic and an inborn. So one's outside in, one's inside out, and the one other one kind of sits in the middle. And in it, this is probably where the chiropractic profession would sit as well. Like other other professions may come over as well that they're entitled to, but as long as you can feel the criteria, essentially. And so in in a chiropractic world, everything exists in perfection, right? If you if you look at the hierarchy of the body beyond the atom, then we go from systems to organs to tissues to cells to organelles to molecules to atoms to subatomic particles yes. to vibrations to energy and then to light. And yeah. then if we break down light, we've got a positive and we've got a negative. And so if I ask people, well, what is health? And if we look at the root meaning of that word, Paul, health means wholeness. And in order to be whole, we have to have both. So if I gave you a magnet and I said, chop off the positive part, you can't do it no. because the positive's in the negative and the negative's in the positive. It's bound. Yeah. yeah, and when we look inside the body, we have, well, actually, just outside of the body, we have, you know, high tides and low tides. We have light and we have dark. We have sun and we have moon. We, everything exists in balance. And when we look inside the body, we also have this amazing feedback mechanism called homeostasis, which keeps us in balance. So we have toxic and tonic reactions occurring in the body all the time. We have cell growth and cell death occurring in the body all the time. We have sodium and potassium pumps crossing cell membranes, positives and negatives, all the time, everywhere in the body. We we have that. So in order to get to health doesn't mean that you have to avoid disease, if that makes sense. So the, the true definition of health is optimal um physical, mental, and social well-being and not necessarily the absence of disease or infirmity. That's the definition of health. Yeah. No, I get that. Here's the big question, though. If health is in crisis, and many people say it is, we've been through a hell of an experience in the last three years where all the alternatives were, you know, just completely blocked out, demonized. Mm. We're seeing the Therapeutic Products Act coming down to limit the supply of alternatives to medications. And I think it's fair to say that most of the synthetic medications are based 
on natural occurring substances, right? That's that's where it comes from. So there's kind of a war on at the moment. How do you see this playing out? And and is it a takeover by the allopathic, the pharma side of it, to for once and for all kill off the competition? Could we see it like that? Is that what it's like? And and how do we change that? Because you know, once you start waking up, it's pretty hard to fall back to sleep again. So I can see an increasing demand for this way of thinking as we go forward and try and sort out the health problems of a nation which are getting on top of us. Let's be real. So how do you mm-hmm. see all that playing out? And, and what do people like you need to do? You're spreading the word. You're doing your best. But it needs to happen at far greater scale, it seems to me, yet. Yeah, I hear what you're saying too. It's, um, I, it's, a, it's a tough I, one, right? It's a tough, it one. a tough one. It is a tough one. And I like to think that there are more and more people seeing the ludicrousy of what is happening in an allopathic model. And I think more and more people that are having the experiences of late are coming out shaking their head like, what are they doing? Whether it's a, the table manner, the bedside manner, whether it's it's the push of a drug, whether it's the, the phone call that you have to do something, regardless of what it is, I think people are waking up to this is not health care, you know, and we realise that it's more sickness care, but this is not health care. And I would hope then that the question that would come after that then would be, where can I go? What is health? We're something different. But the biggest thing, Paul, I think is is helping people see the indoctrinated system that they have been a part of to then be able to trust in something different. Right. But I think the system itself has to collapse on itself for people to then go and ask those questions. And they'll just start with little things to start with. And then it will, will, they'll start to build their trust and their understanding of what health is and, and, and not trusting in someone else to diagnose them because that's just the same as what they've come from, but trusting in their body, trusting that they're made up of, you know, billions of neurons, trillions of neurons, and the body knows. You know, we've all got two ears where they are. We've got two arms. We've got two legs. We've all got noses, eyes, mouth. There's an innate intelligence there that knows what to do every time, all the time, provided that there is no interference to that communication pathway. So could, I would, I don't know if that's kind of answered. I probably could. Could you way. argue in that case that the the experience of the last short time? even though it's been very negative for a lot of people, kind of has potentially some sort of silver lining. Yeah, I, th- I think as from what well, I know, from in my heart at least from what I was saying before, that, you know, the world exists in balance and we exist in balance. And so we can't have situations in our life that do not exist in balance. It just doesn't happen. However, we have to be prepared to look at the other side. We need to prepare, be prepared to look at the positives that's come out of this, as well as the negatives that come out of, have come out of this. And if we did a really good job at that, then we would have it, you know, five hundred even on both sides of the column. You, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I, I, 
silver lining, yeah, I think there always is. And a part of this is that when systems are built on the destruction of the human body and destroying people at the very soul level of who they are, then that can't last for millennial. It, it has there has to be some imploding and exploding of it in order for people to look at different ways to to uh, to view health. Soul level, that's an interesting way of putting it. I think I agree with you on that. Before we started this interview, we we're having a little chat and you told me that um, through your your family's life anyway, that you know the kids have never kind of been medicated. You went through home births. You, I think you described that at the start. You, mm. you, you know, very low intervention. I'm wondering what people say to you or think about you when you tell them that, because that will be different to most people's experience completely. Are yeah. they amazed? Do they? What do they say? Um. Well, I th- most people are, are, well, I had one person the other day saying, oh, that's a great success story of what you've done, you know, at, at, with the home education. And um, I wanted our kids whole well, the, the number one question that you get asked as a home educating family is what do you do for socialisation? Right. And it drives me nuts. And the reason why it drives me nuts is because I am not interested one iota in socialization. Okay. Socialization, by definition, at least for me, is the adoption of different personas in order to fit into the culture in which you are find yourself in or the community. I always say to people, I want my kids civilized. And that is adopting the cultures and traditions of the community in which you live. And for me, I feel that I, as a parent, as a mother, have very successfully raised civilised children. And I asked uh, our middle boy just the other day, he happened to be home, and I said I had this interview coming up with you, and and um, I said, what, you, what, you, what was the greatest gift that you got from your home education? And he said, Mum, to be honest, I got to be who I wanted to be. That's and I cool. thought that was that was important because for us, we, we actually never called it home education, Paul. We called it inspired learning. All of the education I did with the kids was through me observing what they love to do. So our middle boy, he loves rugby, so we would go down and do maths at the rugby field. So what angle do you think you need to do that? I didn't get protractors out or or, or measuring tapes. It's just, let's, let's just estimate it. Let's just let's just see. And he's very, very good at mass and spatial awareness. And then and our older boy was the same. I mean, we spend probably four hours at the beach each day surfing. But the, what we wanted to do was we wanted to raise kids that would have um, awesome experiences, know who they were as a person, be confident in themselves in any situation, whether it was dealing with a um, I'm sorry, not dealing, uh, interacting with a newborn child all the way through to the grandma and nursing home. We wanted them to have the full gamut of life's experiences, and they've certainly had that. And, um, you know, now they're doing, you know, great things um, in their life. But for us, going through school, going through education, the more that we could um, be out of that system but trust that our children had everything within them to educate themselves because for us if i was trusting them in their health you know good job buddy you know health expression physical body you're going to get down the ramp awesome then why wouldn't i as a parent trust 
that they would have everything inside of them in order to educate themselves. So for us, education was on an as as per needed basis, which was if you're asking the question, floodgates are open and in I go. Okay, where can we go and get all of this information? Let's go and find it out. So that's how we raised, you know, how we raised our our kids and um, they've done exceptionally well. And at the end of every year, Paul, I would take them out for um, an interview, I would I would call it an interview, and I would sit there and I go, okay, so what did you love? What didn't you love? What, um, what would you like more of? What mentors would you like in the community? Because we used to tap into lots of people because there are lots of retired, amazing minds um, on the island. And then um, and if you if you wanted to have, oh, oh, and would you like to have the school experience? So I never put school out. Right. I, just, I always offered it, but we had so much fun with home education and exploring life and talking, then uh, they never wanted to have it until our older boy, um, he said, actually, I would like to have the school experience. And that was in his year 13, and he ended up going and having the school experience, as did our second boy at that upper level. Um, But both went in knowing who they were and what they were capable of. And having done no formal education at all, they did exceptionally well at school. So, and they used to go, these kids are all so stressed, mum. And I'm like, well, that's the environment. They were like, this is okay. This is quite easy, you know. So it's just how you perceptually see things that, that, uh, or see things in your kids. You know, I want to always encourage home education. And and so many parents say that, oh, I couldn't teach my child. But if you're looking at a school curriculum, no, (laughs) no, probably not. But who wants to teach that curriculum anyway? But you taught your child the English language by the age of you know, one or two. And if you taught that, then you can teach other things. Yeah, of course, it unlocks everything. Yeah, yeah. It's been really interesting talking with you, Dr. Sarah Ferrant. Appreciate you coming on. Um, Great insights, great stories, and I'm sure our listeners have benefited from that. If they want to find out more, you've got a website. Do you want to just tell us um, what that is? Oh, and, thank you, Paul. Yeah. Um, if they go to vital, V-I-T-A-L, and then dash, not an underscore, but a dash, wellbeing, W-E-L-L-B-E-I-N-G.com, vitalwellbeing.com, and then you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at One Vital Wellbeing. Um, that would be the best place to, to get Well, thank you, uh, and I'm sure people will visit. And, again, um, nice to have you on, and uh, all the best. Um, sounds like... It's all working fine, so uh, that's great. All right. Thank you for having. Thank you for having me, Paul. I appreciate your time. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.